Glory be to God. Folks, open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. The passage served as our scripture reading, so I won't read it in full again. Uh, but I do want you to be there to pick up at verse 26. For the last two weeks, we've been talking about demons, doctrines of demons, not the false doctrines that the demons spread within the churches and among the churches, but our own biblical understanding of doctrines about demons. Christians need to have a biblical understanding of demons and for a number of reasons. First, as we discussed last week, you know, we don't want our church to get caught up in a bunch of fruitless activity, fruitless sideshow. Uh, there are churches who believe whenever anything goes wrong, your cat bites you. Must have been a demon. Some even, even claim to cast out demons from existing church members, those who also uh, they claim are Christ, yet they've fallen into sin problems, and, and because of that it must be a demon. Not only can that become a circus sideshow, it's just poor theology, folks, that places the responsibility for your sin outside of you, or apart from you and the demon, rather than, as James 1.14 suggests, our flesh, our sinful flesh that has enticed our lusts. Uh, there are many sources to temptation, we know that, uh, but we're responsible for our own sin. We're responsible for our own flesh that we allow to lead us into sin, and yet God always provides a path to escape. There's no scriptural evidence an evil spirit can indwell a born-again believer. Surely God would not permit a demon to occupy the same person that he is indwelling by his Holy Spirit, a person who he has regenerated through the Holy Spirit and taken up a permanent residence in the Holy Spirit. We are, we are temples of the Holy Spirit. You know that, right? The Holy Spirit lives inside of us. That spiritual rebirth struggles against our lust and our flesh. A Christian can nonetheless grieve the Spirit and become guilty of some pretty horrific sins. So bad, in fact, that Paul the Apostle told the church in Corinth that God had chastened them physically. 1 Corinthians 11.30 says, For this reason many among you are weak and sick, and a number have died. That was due to sectarianism and division and conflict. God had judged them. James' remedy for those who had fallen sick due to sin, sins against the body, is to confess your sins to one another, right? And you will be healed. That's James 5, verse 16. For the Christian, Satan may have enticed you, but the devil never made you do it. We're not instructed to call disobedient believers to the front to exercise their demons. That's not the biblical approach. If sin becomes grossly immoral, real bad, and there's a refusal to repent involved with that, Scripture directs us to not cast out their demon, but to disfellowship, folks. Not to even eat with such a one. That's 1 Corinthians 5. Um, secondly, we don't possess authority over demons anyhow. If you were here with us last week, you would have learned that Christ has not bestowed upon us that power which he specifically delegates to the disciples. Certain disciples. Those signs, those miracles were given so the early church could distinguish 
between who Jesus truly sent and the false teachers like Hymenaeus and Philetus. Once the New Testament was completed, that's now fully sufficient to guide and defend us against all, all error in doctrine. The Bible is sufficient, folks. Notice when Jesus was tempted by Satan, a demonic angel, we went through that in Luke chapter 4, how did Jesus always respond? It is written, it is written, it is written. It's always the Word of God that corrects our thinking and uh, redirects our trajectory for obedience to God. We don't possess the power and authority that Christ displays in this passage that we're reading This, as I said last week, is the primary point of this passage. Jesus is different. He's come on the scene now, and he's different from any other prophet that had come before. He displays complete authority over the spiritual realm. They obey him. Uh, Luke has been very purposeful and systematic in the way he presents this as well uh, in the progression of this writing. We could divide this chapter 8 that we're... This latter part of chapter 8 we're looking at right now into three portions here at the end. Three parts. First, we see Jesus displayed just absolute control over the wind and waves, right? Remember that from two weeks ago? He calmed that storm. In this middle passage we're in today, Jesus exercises unhindered authority over demons, unrestricted authority over them. And in the last part that we'll look at next week, Jesus is going to display power and authority over every type of disease, even death. Even death. So Luke wants the reader of his gospel to have no confusion once these powers begin to be delegated to the disciples in chapter 9 and chapter 10. Uh, He doesn't want anyone to be confused where this authority is coming from. It's not from the disciples. It is delegated to them from Christ. The authority is in Christ. So in Luke chapter 8 and verse 25, when the, when the disciples in the boat with him marvel, and they say, who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? There's only one rational answer in all that. This is God in the flesh And in the boat. So immediately after that event where Christ calmed the storm, in verse 26 we're told, Then they sailed to the country of the Gerizines. Here in Matthew you might see Gadarenes. That's a region. It's a region. Uh, The name means reward in the end. Reward in the end. We'll see what the reward is at the end of this passage. They departed Capernaum on the west. Now they land on the east side, opposite of Galilee. So they're on the east side of the sea. And when Jesus came onto the land, he was met by a man from the city who was possessed with demons and who had not put on any clothing for a long time and was not living in a house, but in the tombs. It just so happens on the east side today, if you've traveled to that region, gone on tour, on the east side today of the Sea of Galilee, you'll see steep, uh, a steep decline into the water, and on the side of the rocky hills, you'll see open caverns 
that have been used as tombs. It's there today. There are still tombs there, old ancient tombs. The account recorded in Mark states that this demoniac, as we refer to him, he met Jesus immediately when Jesus got out of the boat. It was right there on the water, right when Jesus stepped out of the boat. Matthew expands our understanding further, mentioning that there were actually two. There were two demoniacs there, both extremely violent. One must have been predominant in some way, and that's why the other two gospel writers speak specifically about this one who engaged Jesus. Symptoms of a demon possession usually include extreme violence. The young boy we will find in chapter 9, when the evil spirit would seize control of him, we read the boy suddenly screams, and the demon throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and only with difficulty does it leave him mauling him, mauling the young boy as it leaves. Luke 9, verse 39. Then in verse 42, that same passage says, the demon even slams the boy to the ground. Violent. If you remember back in chapter 4, we saw a demon-possessed man in the synagogue when, when Jesus entered, you remember, and it, and it cried out in a screaming voice at Jesus. Here we see a demoniac. He's living in the tombs. He's running naked. Mark indicates he was strong enough to break his bonds. They had, they had put chains and bound him, sh shackles we read, and he break it into pieces and it says that no one in town anymore was able to restrain this man. That's the power that he had because of this demon. It says it constantly night and day, Mark 5.5 5 says he was screaming among the tombs and in the mountains and, and, and gashing himself with stones. Bizarre, bizarre behavior. Last week we saw a man possessed by just one of these demons beat up on seven sons of a Jewish priest. Stripping them naked, sending them away. It says severely wounded, Acts chapter 19. This man, he's got a legion of demons, folks. A legion was 6,000. We know from the event with the swine there were at least 2,000. 2,000 demons in this man. Probably calls himself a legion because, you know, they're always overestimating themselves, those demons. Make themselves look bigger. But at least 2,000, he calls himself legion. Any problem for Christ? Any problem at all? One demon takes out seven Jewish exorcists, priest-type guys. Here we got 2,000, no problem. Most evidence found in Scripture describes these demoniacs as loud, crazy, extremely violent. This man's no exception. Can you imagine? Say he's living by the tombs now. Can you imagine in town, the townspeople, can you imagine this guy coming up in the middle of the night, coming up to your window, screaming, terrorizing the neighborhood? They were chaining him when they could get him within reason, and they were changing, chaining him out by the tombs. You wouldn't want him in your, in your backyard. Bizarre. Bizarre, out of control. Demon possession, folks, this is a point I wanted to get on this. It doesn't cause your teenager to come back from college 
with a bad haircut and a, and a really poorly done tattoo. You know, parents say, you know, I can't believe what's gotten into him. He must have a demon. No, he's just young. He's just young. That's not demonic behavior as we see it. Probably not. Demon would, a demon possession would more resemble an extreme and unpredictable, uh, a violent response that nobody else can control. That's what we're encountering here. You might not be able to control them with chains and, and, and bonds, but demons, they're not irrational. They're not irrational. They have no trouble recognizing Jesus right here. They immediately see him as God's son and as their judge. We'll see in a moment that they fall down before him. That's not an act of worship, folks. I know that misperception has been out there. A common misperception, demons don't worship God. Demons hate God. Demons hate Christians. Demons hate us. Look what they were doing to this, this man even. Demons don't worship God. The reason that they bow to Jesus, it's a selfish motive. It's, it's out, of, out of selfishness. They, they beg him. They're begging for themselves. Beg for what? The passage tells us they're begging for what? They want more time. They're begging for more time. They aren't begging for forgiveness. This isn't a repentance response and a worship of Jesus. They're begging for more time. Verse 28, seeing Jesus, he cried out, this is the man with the demons now, and fell before Jesus and said in a loud voice, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Don't torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had seized him many times, and he was bound with chains and shackles and kept under guard. And yet he would break his bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And the man responded, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they were imploring Jesus not to command them to go away into the abyss. That's what they were asking. In, in Matthew 8, verse 29, in Matthew's account, they cry, Have you come to torment us before the time, right? What time? Before the time they are scheduled to be cast into the abyss. Have you come here to cast us into the abyss before the time? In Revelation 20, verse 3, the abyss, that's a holding place. That's like a holding cell for demons. Um, Revelation 20, verse 3, the devil and his angels are held there during Christ's thousand-year millennial kingdom. That's where they are held in the abyss. They are securely held there uh, so that Satan, we are told, will not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. It will only be after the thousand years of the millennial kingdom, when Satan will again be freed, then judged, then doomed into the 
eternal lake of fire. You'll find that Revelation 20, verse 10, where they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The lake of fire, or hell, eternal hell, that will be the permanent destiny. That's not what we're talking about in the abyss. Satan will be bound in the abyss, a place of torment, for a thousand years during the millennial reign of Christ. The thousand-year reign we find in Revelation 20. The fallen angels will join Satan there during the millennium. These angels have good theology, folks. These fallen angels. When God's word says something, they believe it will happen. Notice these angels are not yet in the abyss. They fear being cast into the abyss. Neither is Satan bound today. The Apostle Peter warns us that he prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. 1 Peter 5 verse 8. James 4 verse 7 warns the church, Resist the devil and he will what? He will flee from you. During the church age that we reside in today, Satan and his angels are attempting to deceive us, to torment those who they can, but they will be chained in the abyss during the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth, the millennial kingdom. We know right now Satan is not yet changed in the abyss, or not chained in the abyss. What's the conclusion? The church is not currently in the millennium. Follow me? That's a future that's a future time. Port St. Lucie Bible Church does not accept amillennialism or amillennialism against the millennium, against the literal existence of a millennial kingdom. That's what amillennials believe. Claims the thousand years it's just a, a symbolic representation of the spiritual reign of Christ over his church. They believe that we're in it right now. Anybody see Satan bound? That's not the instruction the church has given. You don't see that in Scripture. This is one reason Port St. Lucie Bible Church is premillennial. Premillennial. The thousand-year millennium, when Satan and his angels will be bound in the abyss for a thousand years. That's future, folks. Follow me? That is a future event. This abyss they're chained in, it's not eternal. It's a holding place during the millennium, a place of severe torment. This legion of evil spirits is begging Jesus not to cast them there. Not to put them there early. Why would they fear that Jesus might send them there early? Because they know that certain fallen angels have already been sent there early for bad behavior. They're bad boys. Bad boys. Jude 6 describes them as angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode. God has kept them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Jude's describing the abyss. Some angels are already there. They're ones who didn't keep their proper domain. They abandoned their proper abode. 
and they were sent early into the bonds of darkness. That is the abyss. Uh, an abode, folks, that, that's in the Greek, that's a place of habitation. It's a dwelling place. The Greeks suggest a, a proper place they should be dwelling. They didn't keep that. This can't suggest those angels who abandoned their proper dwelling place. That means they abandoned heaven when they rebelled. And, and they abandoned heaven. Although they did. But that can't be what is implied here as the offense, because if that were true, then all fallen angels would already be in the abyss. Follow me? If that were the offense that they abandoned heaven in their rebellion against God when they joined Satan, if that were the offense, and that's the reason they were cast into the abyss, all angels would already be in the, the abyss. That can't be what this means. Um, but we know from our passage today that some evil spirits are still fearing being cast into the abyss. Jude is speaking of a certain classification of fallen angels who abandon their proper place, their proper sphere of habitation, and they took up a new abode, a new habitation. I think both of these passages, the one from Luke and Jude, what they're talking about, um, I think these passages suggest there is a class of demons who decided to inhabit human bodies in order to wreak havoc as we see here they gave up their proper domain and 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 uh took on an improper abode those were cast early into the abyss to endure the torment before the millennial reign of christ these spirits named legion they fear joining them they fear joining them they're aware what happens to angels who are caught caught by God inhabiting an improper abode, they are cast into the abyss early. So that they fear this prospect of having to join this other class of demons already in the abyss. Matthew 8.29 says they cried out saying, What business do we have with one another, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Meaning before the millennium when they're cast in there. What business have we with one another? Scripture says they were imploring Jesus not to command them to go into the abyss before the proper time. You ever wonder, you ever wonder why Jesus got into a boat, went through a storm, stepped on the opposite side of the lake for a few short period of time, just to hop back in the boat and turn around and leave again? Why? Because he's taking care of business. These demons say, what business do we have with one another? Jesus said, I'm going to take care of business. There was a song written about that. Taking care of business. Bachman Turner Overdrive. Jesus here is taking care of business. With a couple thousand fallen angels who have abandoned their proper abode and have been demonizing this poor man. Jesus is here to set things straight. They implore him, they, they beg him not to command them into the abyss. Who's in control? Who's in control? And in verse 32, they beg him to let them instead enter a herd of swine, a many swine feeding nearby. Now, now the swine we know, according to the law, they're unclean, right? They're unclean. These spirits are described in, this, described in this passage as unclean. I think they're acknowledging that Jesus is going to judge them. 
and they just beg to be judged for what they are, we're unclean. We're unclean. Send us to a place unclean. Not the abyss, just a place unclean. If people were as intelligent as these demons today, if sinners would simply admit we are unclean, we deserve to be reckoned or seen as unclean, and recognize that Christ is the one with the authority to condemn us to torment, then people would be the ones crying out, Jesus, have mercy on us. If we would rightly reckon ourselves, if you've never trusted in Christ, you at least have hope. You have hope because Christ died for your sins, not for the demons. They have no hope except in a delay of eternal punishment. That's their only hope. A little more time. They're begging for just a little more time. Do you realize how many people embrace the the theology of these demons today? The, The only hope the demons have Yeah, I know the way I'm living is unclean and and, and God is not pleased with my life and I know it's unclean and and, and, but but I'll just keep hanging around with the swine for a little bit a little while longer and and I just hope I get a little more time. Follow me? So many people just want a little more time here. A little more time before God casts me into hell. How foolish of an outlook is that for a human being just to want more time here rather than to turn from their uncleanness rather than turning to Christ. I think this is why Matthew 7 verse 6 tells us when witnessing, for us when we are witnessing, don't cast your pearls before the swine. God calls those unbelievers swine. The ones who refuse to believe that Christ died for their sins and rose from the dead so that they could be saved from their life of uncleanness. Swine are those who instead just want to be left alone a little while longer in their uncleanness like these demons. Wallow in the mud for a little while longer, just a little more time. That's the most hope these demons have. They aren't given any more time. Christ doesn't give them any more time. He gave them permission, all right. Notice how short of a leash Jesus holds on these. So short of a leash. They they can't even enter a pig without Jesus permitting them. He's got a short leash. And in verse 33 it says, The demons came out of the man and entered the swine, and the herd rushed down the steep bank, into the lake and was drowned. Some people say, oh look, Jesus even had mercy on the demons. He allowed them to go into the swine. No, he didn't have mercy. He judged them unclean in allowing them to go into the swine. And do you know what happened to them next? That life that they hoped to extend in uncleanness the life they wanted to hold on for just a little while longer, that short life 
living with the swine, stampeded them headlong into the abyss. An ancient thought. A sea or a large body of water was symbolic of an abyss. The abyss was culturally recognized in Jesus' day as a large, dark body of water, a watery place. That's how the culture perceived the abyss, a watery place. So being sent into the pigs, by being sent in the pigs, the demons were hoping to avoid the watery place, the abyss. It's more than interesting, an unrelated passage, Matthew chapter 12, verse 43. It's a completely different passage. Jesus says there, when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking to find rest. Seeking a waterless place to find rest. Why are demons seeking a waterless place? I don't know. You know, maybe they're like those aliens in Mel Gibson's movie, you know, the signs. They, they never landed by water. I, I don't know. I think it's just being symbolic of their desire, their, their yearning, their longing to avoid the abyss. I think that's what this is pointing to. I don't know for sure. What we do know is that Jesus agrees they are unclean. He permitted them to enter the pigs, and their life with the pigs became a vessel of God's judgment as he herded those swine into the abyss, into the watery place. I believe the reaction of those pigs, it symbolizes how Christ actually sent them to the abyss. I don't think he gave them more time. They had inhabited an improper abode. He judged them for what they had done. Folks, for those who are unclean, demons or otherwise, there won't be any mercy. We keep wanting to read mercy into everything. And the torment will be so horrible that even the demons were hoping just a little more time. Just a little more time before God judges. Is that the best we can do? Is that that the best that we have? The the best hope? Just hope for a little more time on earth before judgment. Is that where your mind is? Friends, you don't want to find your yourself at the end of life, possibly in a hospital bed, facing death, and your only hope is a little more time. A little more time before God condemns your soul to hell, folks. There's no hope in that. No hope. Those who do not place their trust in Christ, Folks, they're going to be cohabitating with these guys named Legion. Don't do that. There's no hope in just trying to delay the inevitable or just buying a little more time. Hope only exists in Christ who has the authority to judge us, to judge these demons and to judge you and me, But the hope is that by His grace and through the power of His resurrection from the dead, we know He also has the authority to extend mercy to us. He extends mercy today to everyone here. 
He not only has the authority to judge, He has the authority to save. I'm not sure what to make of the explanation for the behavior of the town in verse 34. It says, When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they ran away, they reported it to the city and out in the country. The people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind. They became frightened. Those who had seen it reported to them how the man who was demon-possessed had been made well. And all the people of the country of the Gerizines and the surrounding district asked Jesus to leave them. For they were gripped with fear, and he got into the boat and returned. How sad is that? I'm not sure I have a full grip on why the people were so frightened. Um, It doesn't seem they were terribly concerned about the swine. Was Jesus concerned about the swine? Trick question. No. He's infinitely more concerned about the man who's sitting there now in his right mind than he was about 2,000 pigs. Peter probably would have filed a lawsuit against Jesus. His only defense in court would have been this. Read my book cover to cover, beginning to end. I came to seek and save people who are lost. Those who have eternal souls. Not to build fancy places for animals while children in the womb who are created in the image of God die. We've got a valuation problem in this culture. Jesus wasn't concerned about the swine. There's zero emphasis in the Bible about our serving animals other than treating them humanely and then serving them for dinner. That's it. Things are out of balance, folks. We love our pets. We treat them well. We treat even animals that we slaughter for food well, but they're still animals. These townspeople, they were probably Syrians, might have been Syrians. It might also have been an an outlying group of Jews who weren't behaving very kosher. Isaiah prophesied about these folks. Ever ever read that? About those who God was very upset with because they were eating swine's flesh. They were Israelites who weren't observing the law. That happened. They'd eat swine's flesh, so it wasn't unusual in Israel. If these Jews, if they were Jews, and they came running out to this to see this scene and found this man sitting in his right mind, and then there's a herd of, think of that picture, 2,000 dead swine floating in the water. That's no small herd. Nobody would want to say, who... You know, whose pigs are those? Think about it. Who'd claim them? I mean, that's a big herd for a small town. And, and they find a Jewish teacher and a prophet standing with a man there who used to be a demoniac. Those pigs are over there. They, they aren't mine. What's going on here? And, and how easy it is for a whole community to slip into sin. 
when they're watching the guy who has the worst defilement of the group. They're looking at him. Easy to justify ourselves by saying, well, yeah, I'm, I might be snacking on a little bacon, but at least I'm not like living in the tombs and running around naked and screaming and doing awful things like that guy. Too, too, too often our standard for holiness it becomes relative. We're measuring one to another rather than to the holiness of God. Sometimes it even makes us feel a little better if someone's a lot, better off than, or a lot worse off than us. We can feel a little better about ourselves and our sin, a little more comfortable with our sin. And if he suddenly gets his life cleaned up, well, now where's the spotlight fall? Now we've got to explain how we ended up earning a herd of pigs. Holiness doesn't grade on a scale, folks. God has two grades on his scale, clean and unclean. Have you been cleansed through the blood of Christ? The fella here, he's now become clean. While the town remains unclean. By the way, if it were Gentiles that owned the herd and lived over there, which is very possible, in the eyes of God, they were still unclean. Makes no difference in the interpretation. What is the indication that you have been cleansed? According to this passage, the townspeople, they just want Jesus to go away. But in verse 38, it says, The man from whom the demons had gone out, the one in the story who has been cleansed, he was begging Jesus not to go away. He was begging that he might accompany Jesus. But Jesus sent him away saying, Return to your house and describe what great things God has done for you. So he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done. You see, this, isn't, this passage isn't merely a passage about Christ's authority and his power over demons. Christ's greatness, it is that. His power over the spiritual realm, it's not only about that. It's how Christ uses that power that he has, not only for his glory, but for the mercy and salvation of those people that he died for. Those who were unclean, those who were afflicted. It's the gospel, folks. It's the good news is the power of God to salvation who, to everyone who believes. Jew first, even the Greek. It's to everyone. We might not have been demon-possessed before becoming a Christian. We surely weren't in our right minds. Actually, if you think back to our previous behavior, we were out of our minds. But Luke 24, verse 45 tells us that he opened our minds to understand the scriptures, not merely so that we can learn academic facts about Christ or about God. Facts don't save. Even the demons had facts. But through those facts about Christ, we can believe in him and be reconciled to a loving and merciful God. Jesus didn't imply the demoniac needed to study for a few years before entering God's service. He didn't suggest he needed to attend Bible college or get a degree at the seminary in order to be used by God. All that stuff's fine. But all Jesus wanted this man to do was for him to go and tell others about the great things that God has done for him. Every one of us is qualified to do that. 
every single one of us. That's our response to this passage. I got one, one thing I need to state, I guess. I promised I would. What would I do if I encountered this? I haven't, but what would I do? I brought that up last week and I promised I would answer. It is a possible scenario to encounter a demoniac today. I've heard a couple of men whom I trust very well. They were both professors at Dallas. Um, who encountered this in two different, one each in one situation each, over many, many years of ministry once. Um, I suppose if someone were begging me to help their daughter or their son who was falling in the fire, uh, or a friend, or if I got annoyed enough like Paul, the only way that I would know to respond, the only way I'd know is Acts sixteen eighteen that Paul that Paul said to the young girl who was walking behind him, I command you in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, come out. That's all I would know how to respond. Then I'd pray that God steps in and defends me. Because we know what happened to those seven sons. But if pressured into it, that is the only way that I would know that Scripture would tell us how to respond to someone who is demon-possessed. I hope I never encounter it. I realize I don't have authority over evil spirits. I'm not going to seek that scenario out our situation though as Christians if we're willing to acknowledge it it's much more parallel to the situation of the demoniac we have been saved we have been made clean those who trusted in Christ it'd be much better if we would spend our emphasis responding in the way that this man did and going to tell all the great things that Jesus has done let's pray Father you are marvelous, Lord, and uh, you go far and wide. Your spirit goes forth, Lord, and, and your word goes through servants, and uh, Lord, you reap a harvest. Father, we see through this, this man that you did great things for him, and boy, you've done great things for us, Father, and uh, we pray because of that that we will go forth, Lord, just as you commanded this man and just as you commanded your disciples in the Great Commission, that we go and tell, make disciples, baptize in the holy name of Jesus, in a Father and a Son and the Holy Spirit, Lord, that you might reap a harvest, Lord, far and wide, here and abroad, through the obedience of this church. Lord, thank you for everyone here, every single one of us. Lord, we love one another and we love you because of the work that you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.